Take your Bibles and turn to John 1. As I said, this is a, a series, we're just a few series in, in, in the first chapter of John about, uh, about God being in the flesh um, and how that, in a sense, uh, whilst in a, in a body of flesh, it, it wasn't just simply that. It was far more. Um, and Jesus is unique in that special way. This morning's uh, verses in particular in this reading, and I'm going to, I'm going to read the first uh, uh, 13, sorry, the first, uh, oh, will you just follow me? Um, I'm going to read a few verses, but uh, really the verses we're, we're, we're concentrating on this morning is verses 4 and 5. Uh, and it's about Jesus being the light of the world. Uh, many artists have tried to uh, uh, bring this thought about Jesus onto paper. And it doesn't really work. It doesn't really work. But nevertheless, it's good to try. And um, one of them was a man called Holman Hunt, and uh, it had Jesus holding a lamp, standing at the door and knocking. You may have seen it. And he, he had, uh, I believe he had thorns, a uh, crown of thorns on his head at the time that picture was painted. Um, but I, I, I just want to see more of Jesus this morning, the fact that he is uh, the light of the world. So let's read these verses together. It's entitled, The Word Became Flesh. I have to apologise to my fellow elders because my ESV Bible was stolen in my iPad in the week, so um, it's gone out there into cyberspace. So I'm reading for the NIV this morning. The Word Became Flesh. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made, without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life, that life was the light of men. The sense behind that is that there's no hiding place from God. That life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, verse 5, but the darkness has not understood it. And we shall look at that a little bit later on. There came a man who was sent from God. Notice that this man was sent from God. He wasn't God. His name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all men might believe. And all men means all men. Verse 8, he himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light, the true light that gives light to every man. There's that word again, every man, was coming into the world. Was coming into the world takes on the whole of the time from the beginning, from Genesis. Jesus has always been coming into the world, whether he's here in the flesh or not. He's always been coming in to the world. Verse 10, he was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, or have received him, 
To those who believed in his name, he gave the right or the power to become children of God. The right is no one can deny you that right and no one can take it away. He gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. So this believing in Jesus' name is nothing earthy in a sense. It's a spiritual thing because we're born of God, born from above. That's a spiritual birth. Verse 14, the word became flesh and lived for a while among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. You can stop following me now. Okay, that was verse 15. Okay. So we just need to catch up a bit on where we've been in the last two weeks. Um, Steve started the series, the series and... Um, you remember his three words, or his four words, was, with, word, and what now. Okay, he's just taking those words which were found in the first part of our reading. He was with God, he, he was God, he was with God, and the word is Jesus manifest in the flesh. And with all that evidence, and I want to say with all that evidence, we just need to see evidence because it's talking about the word here. It's talking about, and I shall refer to this later, it's in a legal sense, it's a watertight case. The word. Steve used the phrase, when you're talking about the word, Jesus, it's God out loud. But it's actually more than God out loud. It's an undeniable a demonstration that God has given that nobody can argue against it. It's a perfect illustration. It's a perfect illustration of what, what, how God wants us to see him. There's nothing, it cannot be bettered. It cannot be improved upon. The word is the perfect demonstration that God has given so that we might understand him. There's no better understanding. Both in the sense of intellect, but also in the sense of a legal situation. We'll come to that later. Okay, so talk, Steve was talking about was with word and what now. And uh, we heard that the, the mystery part of this elevated Jesus from mere flesh to transcend that flesh to oneness with Almighty God. And so we know Jesus as the Son of God. The Son of God. He was also known as the Son of Man. That was another title that Jesus had. Now there's a difference between these two. Okay, In the Jewish mindset, Jesus couldn't be Joseph's son, or the son of man, if you like, and God's son. That was an impossibility. Because as Joseph's son, he was only, he was only a carpenter from Nazareth. He was only a product of his father's lineage. He was only a product of being placed in that local community and culture and he was an extension of his father's trade. He was only a carpenter. That's the Jewish mindset. But Jesus is also known as the Son of God. He's known as the Son of God. There is no other Son of God, Jesus, who is the Son of God, in the same way this Son is the Son of God. Only this one. All other sons of God referred to in the Bible are either created 
or adopted, whereas Jesus, the Son of God, was born out of God himself. The word that the Bible uses in the old translations is begotten. He came from the bosom of God, if you like. He came from God himself. He didn't actually, although he was as a seed planted in the Virgin Mary's womb, although he was a seed, it was the work of the Holy Spirit that planted that seed within her. And so Joseph had no part in Jesus' life. Okay, so the Jews were saying, you know, okay, we can't understand this. This is why it's a mystery. He can't be Joseph's son and God's son. But in a sense, we know today that the important part of this is he is God's son. He came from God, and so that is the mystery. Okay, so the mystery elevates Jesus from mere flesh and transcends his greatness above all men. And then Julian shared last week in God in the Flesh the fact that he is creator, sustainer, and redeemer. And even though he's manifest in the flesh, he's no less of those things. There never was a time when he wasn't. Jesus always has been. But he was manifest in the flesh and still retained the fact that he's creator, sustainer, and redeemer. A little bit about John, who's writing this gospel. He's different than the other three writers. He's more mystery than history, if you like. That's a simple way to look at it. The other three writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they give us a lot of history, and they give us all that they saw and wondered about Jesus. But John goes a little bit further, and he's more history, mystery than history, as we've seen, and he's given us to see that uh, Jesus, the Word of God, he was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. But mystery intellect would say, that can't be, I can't understand that. But it doesn't really matter, the fact that it is. Jesus is unique. Jesus wasn't a scribe. Jesus was lots of things. He was prophet, priest, and king. And they were important roles within the Jewish community, but he wasn't a scribe. He never left no autobiography. He never, as far as we know, wrote anything down for us to read. But we do read about him writing in the dirt one day, don't we? He wrote in the dirt, and then we don't know what he wrote. But John has given us a very good understanding of Jesus, that he, wasn't, he was just more than just a man. He actually brings revelation to the idea of Jesus coming here so that, as he said at the end of his gospel, that all people can believe. That was part of his purpose. He said, I've written these things down so that all men can believe. So in a sense, we have document here, which is so precious to us, in the Bible, Gospel of John, with all the other things that are written, and it's a watertight case that we're presented with as far as our salvation is concerned, our forgiveness, our acceptance with God, because Jesus was the undeniable word of God. It can't be replaced by any other document, if you like, any other writing, any other credence. He's there. He's Jesus. He's the Son of God. Where I'm coming from this morning is, um, 
I want to look at Jesus as the light of the world. But in a sense, uh, you have to understand what the darkness is that John's talking about first before you can understand what the light is. Jesus is the light of the world. The life was the light. You know, history has seen waves of change. Um, some have been determined so revolutionary that names have been given to them. There's the age of innocence, the age of reason, the age of Aquarius, the age of exploration, and for this morning, the age of enlightenment, the 18th century. I just want to just read a little bit of the history of that um, because Jesus is the light of the world and how it affects that. Coming up to and in the 18th century, the forward thinkers had had enough of what they called the Dark Ages. There was superstition, doubtful tradition, a sense of irrationality in thinking and intellect. Then there was the control of the hierarchy within the established churches. They had controlled the people, and they felt, these forward thinkers thought, that people were too much under the control of the hierarchy of the church. And at that point, that was true. There was control. This so-called movement advocated rationality as the dominating criteria for a new system of ethics and knowledge. It was thought that this system of reasoning would push forward progress in every area of community and culture. However, the tendency would be to steer people away from the light of the gospel. From the light of the gospel. The Age of Enlightenment. The established churches fought hand over fist to quench this so-called Age of Enlightenment. It was not all defective, and there were improvements for individuals, communities, and cultures. However, the tendency would be to steer people away from the light of the gospel and generally the doctrines of creation, godly behavior, salvation, the church, and certainty about life's end and what happens next. Now, I just want to look at three main areas that would, were defective as far as, as far as people were concerned. There were three main areas of dangerous thinking which formed part of the reasoning which set about bringing out this age of enlightenment. And uh, it didn't bring enlightenment, but actually brought people into another age of darkness. To another age of darkness. The first one was to retain a form of deism, a form of, a form of God, accepting the existence of God and the hereafter, but they rejected the call of a personal God through knowing Jesus Christ as Saviour and Lord. And they rejected Bible-based discipleship. This was the free thinking. This was the change. This was the age of enlightenment to bring about. They, one of the other things was, the second thing, human aspirations should not be determined by God's future purposes, that's the eternal existence, but rather on the means of improving this life only. Improving this life only. The third thing 
of the Age of Enlightenment was happiness in this world was of more consequence than the need to be sure of where my life is in relation to accepting or refusing or refusal before God. Now, three dangerous things. So you see that in actual fact, they were trying to escape darkness, but they're actually moving into another age of darkness. A form of deism. Yeah, we'll accept there's a God. Satan accepts there's a God. And they accept, well, there is possibly something hereafter. And it wasn't definitive, but they, this was the idea to move away from this. Jesus, the light of the world. That's what we're looking at this morning, the light of the world. But this means little, it means very little, if we're not aware of the darkness into which he shines. So Jesus is shining into an age or a world of darkness where people are saying, I'll accept as a God, but about the hereafter, I don't know. Jesus is shining into this darkness. I just want to define darkness for us this morning. Religion without relationship. Faith without Jesus as the object of it. And coming to the end of my life without having the right answer. I believe that's an age of darkness we're now living in. Okay? Religion without relationship, faith without Jesus as the object of it, and coming to the end of my life, or your life, without having the right answer. And I just want to put for you a test question. If you were to stand before God, and John's obviously mentioned this before many times, if you were to stand before God and he was to say to you, what reason are you going to give me to let you in? Let you in? that I, I will accept you or let you into heaven. What reason would you give? And it'd be good to go home and ask yourself that question too, when you've got time to think about it. If I was to stand before God, what reason can I give? What, what, what reasonable, what reasonable reason, if you like, we're reasoning people, what reason am I going to give? Are you sure about that? If you've got a Bible, can you turn to Isaiah 9? We've been at Isaiah already today. We're going to read a few verses from chapter 8 just to lead us into that. You might remember this phrase at Christmas time. People walking in darkness have seen 
a great light. People walking in darkness have seen a great light. So we're just going to read a few verses around that and just ask a few questions about it. This is the prophet Isaiah, and he's writing. Uh, he's writing in the context of, of Israel being a, a nation which has fallen foul of all that God actually wanted for them. And they're sort of groping about in the darkness. They're groping about sort of like blind people trying to find, find their way, and they can't find their way. They've gone through situations, of, uh, or they would go through situations where they would face opposition and great armies, the Assyrians being one of them, very big, almighty army with great power and great force and brutality that would come in and just almost destroy them as a nation. So for them, it was like going through darkness. It was dark times in the history of Israel. So we, we, we come into it at that sort of time. And in verse 18 of chapter 8, we read, Here am I and the children the Lord has given me. We are signs and symbols in Israel from the Lord Almighty who dwells on Mount Zion. When men tell you to consult mediums and spirits who whisper and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Why consult the dead on behalf of the living? To the law and to the testimony, if they do not speak according to this word, they have no light of dawn. Distressed and hungry, they will roam through the land when they're famished. They will become enraged and looking upward, they will curse their king and their God. Then they will look towards the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom, and they will be thrust into utter darkness. Now that's just taken out of the history of Israel, but I look out on society today, I take a worldview today, and I think we can see similar things. They will look to the earth and see only darkness. They'll see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom, and they will be thrust into utter darkness. Jesus said to people who were listening to him one day, if the light you have is darkness, then that darkness is great. If the light you have, or the light you think you have, is actually darkness, then that darkness is great. So we're actually looking to Jesus, who is the light of life. And he gives us the answer in darkness. So what do we learn about those few verses that we've just read? That darkness was a prevailing situation because the people loved it and they abandoned God in the midst of it. That's why it was dark. So the people were walking in darkness. People walking in darkness have seen a great light. And this morning we're in a world which God will see as a place of darkness because... The prevailing situation is darkness. Governments, nations, individuals, because people love darkness rather than light. That's the Bible definition. Because essentially, 
we're abandoning God. That's a darkness. That's a dark place to be. People walking in darkness have seen a great light. Isn't that wonderful? That as we walk in darkness through this world, there is still a light shining, and that light is Jesus. So that's why it's essential to look to him for all that we need in this life and for the future life. He's the light that is shining. Let's read on in chapter 9. Nevertheless, so that's a continuation of what has previously been written, nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future, he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by way of the sea along the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as men rejoice when dividing the plunder. So we have a sense of victory being brought out to us in those words. We might not understand the history and might not understand all the places and why they're put in there. But let's just have a look at those. All the activity that brings about hope is on God's side. All the activity that brings about hope is on God's side. So okay, if we look at what, the, uh, what we see on television sometimes, and we look at the, uh, the Earth being blown up by another planet or something, and we, we look at the, um, the green issues and the, the gases, you know, and that we're going to fall into ruin and all the rest of it. Who's got the answer? God has the answer because, as Julian said, he's creator. And so, in the sense of our need in this dark world, all the answers on God's side. That's what we see as we read those verses. The next thing we see, hope is declared. Hope is declared. So what does that mean? It means in the midst of this dark world, God has something in place for the time when I come to the end of my life. He has something in place for if whatever happens to this world, God has something in place for what I need right now. All the answers are on God's side. And when we look at Jesus as the Word, God manifest in the flesh, and He's the total answer, where do we look? We look to Him. He is the light of the world. So in those verses, historical verses, hope is declared. But even though we're here in 2,000 plus years since Jesus, and hope's being declared today. Because as we say very simply, but very powerful, Jesus is the answer. And we used to sing as, as young people, Jesus is the answer to my every need. He is the answer to my need. He's the light of the world. He's the only one that can answer our need. So hope is declared. What is this hope? The first part of the hope is liberation from an oppressor. You know, there's someone overruling this dark world, and it's Satan. Jesus spoke about Satan. Jesus confronted Satan. Jesus actually put himself at the hand of Satan to be tempted. 
you know, and he manifests in that, uh, that, uh, that talking, that, at that time that he spent with him in the desert, he manifested that actually he was anti-God. Satan is anti-God, but he's also an oppressor. He is an oppressor. He reminds us of our guilt. He reminds us of the things we do wrong. He reminds us there's no hope. He says to us, you're a no-hoper. There's nothing left for you. You're out on your own. You're out on a limb. But no, God has an answer, and it's Jesus. So we have an oppressor. Look, Jesus has dealt with him. Don't worry about it. The third thing we learn about this hope is that they could enjoy the fruits of victory past. They could enjoy the hope, the, the fruits of victory past. So here we are in the year 2016, and we can enjoy, have the benefits of what Jesus did when he went to the cross. Jesus did so much. He did everything, actually, for all that we need now and for our life when it comes to an end, and beyond that, we're actually living in the victory of the fruits in the past. So we look to the cross. That's why Christians look to the cross of Jesus, because there it was accomplished. There it was dealt with. There it was dealt with. So the believing community are a people of hope. Oh, we've been a people of hope this morning, haven't we? We've prayed for pain, we've celebrated Jesus' victory, we shouted our praises and made a lot of noise about it. Of course we did. I just had this phrase jump into my mind as we come this morning. I thought to myself, I never, there's never a point in my life where I don't like going out to church on Sunday. And I just, this phrase came in my mind, I'm marching to victory every time I go to church. Every time I come meet with the people of God, I'm marching to victory. I'm coming to celebrate. Nothing will keep me away. That's our Jesus. The believing community are a people of hope. They have different expectations. They have a different authority over their lives and a different attitude to the future. A different attitude to the future. And it's that future that Jesus sheds light on in particular. Because without him, we have no hope. There's no security, no confidence about what's going to happen in the future and where I stand in relation to God. But we are a people with different expectations and we have a different authority over our lives and a different attitude to the future. In the present, we know that God is with us. And in the future, we wait for the sight of him and meeting with him. Amen? When Jesus left the Mount of Olives, I think it was the Mount of Olives, someone will correct me later if it wasn't. That, uh, when Jesus left, the angel said to the people, to the men standing around, don't stay around here. As he went up into heaven, he will so come back in like manner. The wonderful words of scripture, aren't they? He will come back in the same way which he left. <laughs> So we're clear on that. The believing community have a different attitude to the future because Jesus is coming back again. There's a time going to be when Jesus rules and reigns. 
in this earth. What is it? Just further on, down in, that, in Isaiah 9. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Isn't that what we sing, say at Christmas? Do we believe that? We're in the kingdom of Christ here this morning. And it says, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Oh, hallelujah. Praise God for the truth of scripture. Jesus is the light of the world. I just want to look at this last thing that says, the darkness has not overcome it. It's already read, Jesus is the light and the darkness has not overcome it. There's two thoughts here about overcoming. The first thing, it, it, will, um, it will not destroy anything that Jesus has done. So 2,000 years of history, which have been sometimes brutal and forcible to silence the message of Jesus, there have been those times when they've tried to burn all the Bibles and get rid of the truth that's in them. But it hasn't happened, has it? Nearly 2,000 years. Actually, the message of Jesus is getting stronger and stronger and stronger. It's getting more widespread. More people are coming to know him as saviour. The darkness has not overcome it. Then there's this, this bit, you know, the scandalous truth that one man should die for the people and I can go free, contributing absolutely nothing to merit God's acceptance. Scandalous. You might say, well, I've heard people say it's ridiculous. You mean I don't contribute anything to this? No, only the sin that I have, that's all I contribute to this. The difference between religion and relationship is I try to climb the ladder to reach God. Whereas relationship is that God wants and loves us so much that he actually came down to meet us. The difference, the darkness and the light. So that is a scandalous thing to lots of intellectual thinkers. Surely I have to do something to get God's favour. No, you don't. Well, there's one thing that we do do to do that, and I'll come to that in a minute. Your case, however well prepared, could never be watertight. The darkness cannot overcome the light. I just wanted you to imagine the scene in a courtroom for a moment. There's the accusation and there's a defence. There's piles and piles of paper. And, you know, the idea is for one of the sides to actually conclusively say which, which one is guilty. There's the courtroom. You have darkness and light. And all the evidence that darkness or the world of darkness could bring against this gospel of Jesus Christ flounders at every step that it takes in the courtroom. It has no future. So this legal standing with God that we have in Jesus is, is watertight. It's absolutely watertight. There's nothing can stand against it. So the darkness cannot overcome it. 
because all the evidence in the word Jesus as the word of God is totally there. Now, I just want to put a statement out to you, and some of you might be appalled, some of you might challenge me about it, some of you might not agree with it necessarily, but it's based on the perfectness of the case that Jesus has put up for you and for me. The defence that he's put up for you and me through his death and sacrifice is perfect. Nothing can touch it. It's watertight. I just want to put this to you. Not being decisive about Jesus, hanging in the balance, with all the evidence that's given to you, is intentionally rejecting him. I see some nods. <laughs> Not being decisive about Jesus is actually intentionally rejecting him. Why? Because of the word of God. Jesus as the word. Was it Hebrews says... In times past, God has spoken in various ways and at different times through different people and in different ways and somehow it doesn't seem to have worked for many people. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. He's outlouded it by his son. He's provided the watertight defence as the complete word of God for my case and your case, for every individual's case. The word of God. A watertight defense. And I have to say, but I don't say it arrogantly, but I only say it on the basis of this book. I know. Because the evidence of Jesus in this book is watertight. May God bless this message to us. It says as we read on, he came to his own people, the Jewish people, and they didn't receive him. But to as many as received him, to them he gave the power to become the sons of God. So that's why I gave that statement to you. You have an opportunity to, to receive. You say, well, I don't know, I don't understand. The Bible says, accept Jesus, believe in him, and say to him, I don't understand. But I have seen by the evidence that you have given me through Jesus, there's no other way. And there is no other way. And I say that on the basis of the book, not my thinking. Thank you. Father, we just thank you for Jesus. Thank you so much for Jesus. Thank you, Father, that those of, those of us who do know you and have received you can actually have this, we have this confidence in us. I know that I know that I know. And that only comes by your Holy Spirit. Thank you for him too. In Jesus' name.